Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin. Sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We left off in the book on chapter 8. It's called The Virtue of Knowledge. Chapter 8 on the Virtue of Knowledge. I think maximum two more sessions. Inshallah, we'll finish this book. Inshallah. And then we'll go on. Like I said, to um, kind of like the etiquettes of community building, Adab al Sukhbah, Imam Shahran, inshaAllah. So, Bismillah, Qana al Musanifu Rahimullah Ta'ala, Muna Fa'Allah, we have the Muni Ta'ala, I mean. Chapter 8, Virtue of Knowledge. Among that which indicates the preference of seeking knowledge over voluntary worship is the fact that knowledge combines. the fact that knowledge combines uh, the virtues of all other acts of worship. Knowledge is the best form of dhikr, as has been explained. It is also the best form of jihad. It is related from Abdullah ibn Amr and Nu'amad ibn Bashir, directly from the Prophet sallallahu The scholar's ink will be weighted against the martyr's blood, and the scholar's ink will prove weightier. This hadith is said to be fabricated. Not only we, it's actually said to be fabricated. I have a note here. Uh, but again, you know, I think that uh, it's a conversation I was having this week with one brother who's specializing in hadith, and we were talking about this issue and trying to like, okay, the narration is said to be fabricated, but. Ibn Rajab is mentioning it. And Ibn Rajab is kind of more strict when it comes to hadith that he mentions. So why is Ibn Rajab mentioning it? He's mentioning it so that we can take the meaning. Right? Take the meaning of it. He clearly believes that there's a soundness to the meaning. And this is actually one of the... Um, like there's two angles, in a sense, to hadith criticism and um, verification. So one angle of hadith verification is from a strictly hadith perspective. He follows the rules of hadith methodology, which is largely Shafi'i in its approach, and then you, you do that and you analyze the hadith. But outside of the um, independent analysis of the hadith, then how we consider it in light of other things can affect whether or not it's paid attention to. So it could be, for example, that a hadith is considered to be sound based on the mathematics of hadith methodology. But a scholar or a set of scholars may look at it and feel that it contradicts certain principles. And so they won't say that it's not sound, but they might not act upon it. And then at the same time, there may be another narration that is considered weaker according to, again, the mathematics of hadith sciences. But um, I don't know if that's the best term, but according to the rules of hadith sciences. But it agrees with certain principles, or it, it, there's other evidences that support it, and so on, and so scholars would still use it. So there's there's a level of this that's um, there's a level of it that's purely rules, and there's a level of it that's kind of dhoki. There's some taste to it. So he says the scholar's ink will be weighted against the martyr's blood, and the scholar's ink will prove weightier. Timothy relates from Anas ibn Malik that the Prophet said. Whoever treads the path of knowledge, he is in the way of Allah until he returns. He is in the way of Allah until he returns. Another hadith relates, if death comes to the student, he is a martyr. Allah always make us from the students, inshallah. Because we definitely want to be from the martyrs. So this is one way to be from them. Inshallah. relates, acquire knowledge because doing so is good. This is all a quote of Mu'ad. It's very long. Acquire knowledge because doing so is good. Seeking it is worship. Reviewing it is glorifying Allah. Researching is jihad. Teaching it to the ignorant is charity. Serving the scholars is a way of drawing nearer to Allah because Allah, because knowledge is the path of ascension to the stations of paradise. It is a companion in isolation and a comrade in distant lands. It speaks to you in solitude. It is a guide to prosperity and a shield against adversity. It beautifies one among friends and is a weapon against enemies. With it, Allah elevates people and makes them guides and bellwethers of good. The scholars are people whose words are sought and whose actions are imitated. 
The angels long for the scholars' company and comfort them with their wings. Everything, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the earth, the predators of the land and sea, and the cattle pray that blessings come upon them. This is because knowledge enlivens the heart against ignorance, illuminates the eyes against darkness, and strengthens the body. It transports the servant to the mansions of the select and the righteous and to the highest ranks in the world and the hereafter. Contemplating it is equivalent to fasting, and reviewing it is equivalent to the night prayer vigil. With it, kinship is united and the lawful is distinguished from the unlawful. Knowledge is an imam, which leads to righteous deed actions. It is craved by the people destined for the paradise and shunned by people destined for hell. So the statement of Sayyidina Mu'adha bin Jabal Sayyidina Mu'adha is one of the scholars of the companions also. <coughs> Interesting, he says it gives, it strengthens the body. Strengthens the body. It's a very interesting statement, actually. I think we, we know in our lives that strength is not only a matter of physical strength. In fact, you can have people who are very physically strong, but they're not very strong. And you can have people who are maybe not as built up, but they're very strong. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it came in here, but one of the stories about Imam Malik was that when Imam Malik would teach hadith, he was very particular about what he would do. You know, he would sit in a particular way, he would wear very nice clothes, he would put on perfume, he would burn, he would burn oud and stuff like this. And it said that one time, actually, when he was teaching, a scorpion came and bit him, like stung him, something like 15, 16 times. And he didn't move, because he was teaching hadith. And afterwards, they found out, like he's, you know, they noticed that something's going on with him, but he's not moving. And afterwards, they found out that this is what happened, and you know, they dealt with the situation or whatever. But it said that he, he didn't move, you know. And many of these people are like that. Like Imam Ahmed, maybe Imam Ahmed wasn't like he probably wasn't the greatest bodybuilder of his time, but he managed to get tortured by three different khalifas and not give in. That takes a certain level of strength of the body, right? So these people were great people, Ali Muhammad. Maybe it's appropriate to take a moment and just, uh, we can make dua for Shaykh Qadawi, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Shaykh Yusuf Qadawi, one of the well-known scholars of the Ummah in the last hundred years, literally 99 years. And, um, you know, he passed away this week. May Allah have mercy on him. May Allah elevate his rank, accept from him all his good. And, um, you know, forgive him for any mistakes and shortcomings. Um, I think it's good to read people's works, you know. Uh, I remember an incident when I was a new Muslim in San Diego. We used to read a lot of Shaykh Al-Qaradawi. Alhamdulillah, I've read a good amount of his work. He's written over 120 books, so it's not easy to read all of them, but I've read a good amount of his work. And um, I remember a time when we were going to visit a brother who was sick in the hospital. And the brother I was going with uh, felt it was appropriate to have this conversation at the door of the, you know, the emergency room area where they have to let you in. So we're waiting there to get let in. And he's explaining to me the opinion of, I think it was Shikhan and Benny. About, I don't remember what the details, where to put your hands when they come up from prayer or something like this, right? And he was like, Do you know who this Shaykh is? He's a real Shaykh, not like Shaykh al Qaradawi. And I remember thinking to myself, This is a very strange thing to say, like, while we're waiting to go and visit someone who's in the ER, like, this is not really female dairy, you know, this isn't exactly how things are supposed to go. And I think it's good, I think it's, uh, especially for people who study Islam. One of the advices I would give you is that um, it's good to read the people that you hear about. And I don't only mean positive. So, you know, like, there's a lot of people who, for example, they might critique some of the things that Shaykh Muqaddawi said. It's good to read his works. Like, don't just take someone's word for it. Like, this is, and it goes every way. Read Ibn Taymiyyah, read Shaykh Muqaddawi, read uh, Shaykh Al-Bani, read whatever, Rabbi Al-Madkhani, like, read whoever it is. Especially when you're, if you're really serious in your studies. In the beginning, don't read all these people, you go crazy. <laughs> but once you have like a little bit of a foundation, 
it's good to read these from these different places and get an idea. Like if you're gonna have an opinion, you should at least have you'd be able to say like, oh yeah. You know, sometimes people have really harsh opinions. I'm like, so have you actually read anything? Like, yeah, I, I, I methodologically over time I came to differ maybe on some positions of Shaykh Al-Qadawi, Rahimahullah. But that doesn't change who he was. And he's still, he was still a, a great, great person of knowledge. And in addition to that, also very importantly, a person who took very strong stances and paid the consequence for it. And many scholars don't do that, right? Like, for various reasons. Some they've sold out. Some of them, they think it's a better thing to not say something, you know, and be able to teach the people still, and so on and so forth. There might be different reasons. But he took very strong stances, Rahimullah, and he paid the consequence of it. You know, he'd been in prison a number of times. He was exiled for, you know, probably, I would, if I had to guess, probably most of his life. And <coughs> he's written many, many works, you know, so. Allah have mercy on him. <coughs> And he did something really like, you know, some people they only write really scholarly things, and some people they only write really light things. And he managed to do both, you know, like he wrote some really scholarly things. His work on fiqh zakat is very essential. His work on fiqh jihad was a, was a great contribution. His work on fiqh al-awliyat, fiqh of priorities, was very important. And then he wrote other things that were very accessible for the average person. Like the Islamic awakening between rejectionism and extremism, or priorities of the Islamic movement in the coming phase. Uh, there were a lot of things that he did um, that he was ahead of his time. And I think that when people pass away, we tend to change how we look at them. Um, I'm old enough now to remember that many people who are eulogizing Sheikh Qardawi now, they didn't actually listen very much to him. He was, he was too liberal for them. He was too open-minded for them. Now the times changed. Now, like women speak in public, women are part of programming. But uh, <coughs> there was a time when, like 20 years ago, nobody, you know, Sheikh Al-Qadawi was like the outcast in the movement groups. I'm talking about like in the movement circles. Some people liked him, some people didn't like him. They would use him sometimes when it was appropriate. But when it didn't work for him, they wouldn't use him. You know, and now it's like everyone's eulogizing it as if it was like. Like, this is very interesting, but alhamdulillah, we remember those days, so the important thing is Allah have mercy on him, Allah bring benefit from him. The great thing about writing, and one thing I appreciate about, appreciate about him, is that he spoke all the time in public, and he gave a lot of fatwas on TV and stuff like that, but he also wrote, and he put his fatwas into writing, and there's a little bit of an issue with people who raise things all the time, but they don't put them in writing. You know, he put it in writing, so... What that means is now it's, it becomes part of the scholarly discourse, right? So someone can pick up his book and reference it and argue with it and debate it and maybe say, okay, we agree with this, we don't agree with this, and someone else can come and say the opposite, but it's actually there for perpetuity, right? Like his work is there now. Um, <coughs> several shelves of our library are his books. So actually the first book in our studies, the first book that I taught in the community was his book on fiqh of priorities. This was like, probably <coughs> maybe like 2008 or 2009. It's the first book that I really went through with a lot of detail. And subhanAllah, I feel that that was a great blessing because that book is really important. It really kind of like talks about how do you put things in the right place? And how do you put, where should you put emphasis? Where do you not put emphasis? What deserves to be paid attention to? What doesn't deserve to be paid attention to? It's a very important book. Maybe we'll teach it. I have my notes somewhere. Maybe we'll teach it again one day. We should teach it out of respect for his passing. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from him and bless him. I, I posted on Facebook, but experience we had with him in person was um, like very interesting as a student. You know, we came from America. And you see celebrities and you see artists and musicians and the way people act with them and stuff. And we happened to be in a program one time where he came and spoke, and it was amazing. Like all these people who are students of knowledge, you know, they're studying 10, 12, 16 hours a day. And then when he shows up, everyone lost it. Yeah. Like everyone's trying to get to him and hug him and kiss him and touch his hand. And, and it was just, uh, it was really beautiful actually. And he was very old, you know, he was, this was 10 years ago, and he was 99. So, uh, you know, he was, he was old, uh, actually more than 10 years ago, probably. 13, 14 years ago.
But in any case, may Allah have mercy on him. Can you read Surah Al Fatiha for him? Inshallah, his life will get more and more steady. For the last 20 years, people have been studying his life because they knew he was getting old. So, like when he was 70, they gave him this collection of uh, articles about his life written by maybe like 20, 30, 40, 50 different scholars all around the world. Each one wrote something about his life and his contribution and his work and stuff. And they, they published it. It's like two big volumes. That was like 25 years ago, you know. So, I don't know. So, inshallah, more and more will come out. The virtue of Adam over the angels. The story of Adam demonstrates the virtue of knowledge over worship. Allah has shown Adam's virtue over the angels through knowledge, as he taught him the names of all things, while the angels acknowledged their inability to attain to that knowledge. When Adam informed them of the names, his superiority over them was manifested. Allah said to the angels, Did I not say to you that I know the secrets of the heaven and the earth? Heavens and the earth. I know that which you reveal and that which you conceal. Some commentators among the righteous forebears said that what the angels concealed was their saying to themselves, Allah will not create anyone except that we are more noble than him. The superiority of angel Jibreel over the angels who are preoccupied with worship is founded on the knowledge angel Gabriel has been given. This indicates the superiority of knowledge. He is the dispenser of revelation to the messengers. Similarly, the most distinguished messengers have been exalted over the other prophets because of their heightened knowledge and reverence for Allah. For this reason, Allah has described Muhammad وسلم, in many places in the Qur'an as being distinguished and favored with knowledge. The Prophet وسلم, then was commanded to teach his nation. The first mention of a Prophet receiving knowledge and being ordered to teach is found in the story of Ibrahim. He prayed to his Lord for the people of his blessed household that he would raise up for them a messenger from among themselves who would recite unto them his verses, teach them the scripture and wisdom and purify them. He blessed us indeed by sending us a messenger from ourselves, Muhammad Allah the Exalted said, Allah has blessed the believers and that he has sent to them a messenger from themselves. He recites unto them his verses, purifies them, and teaches them the book and wisdom, while before this they were in manifest error. The initial revelation to Muhammad mentioned knowledge and its virtue. Allah says, recite in the name of your Lord who created, created man from a clot. Recite and your Lord is most noble. He has taught by the pen, taught man what he knew, what he knew not. Allah frequently mentions blessings, blessing Muhammad with knowledge such as Allah's statement. Allah has revealed to you, O Muhammad, the book and wisdom, and he has taught you that which you knew not. Surely Allah's favor upon you is great. Allah commanded the Prophet to request knowledge from his Lord. Say, My Lord, increase me in knowledge. The Prophet said, I am the most learned and reverent of you concerning Allah. I am the most learned and reverent of you concerning Allah. Meaning, I'm the one who knows best how to do this thing, sallallahu Like this whole thing of trying to get close to Allah, I'm the one that knows best how to do it. You follow my way, sallallahu This is one of the famous hadith that Shaykh Qardawi mentioned in the book on uh, Islamic awakening between rejection and extremism. It's one that he would talk about all the time. The hadith of with the three men who came to the house of the Prophet, sallallahu And they started to ask about his worship and his life to his wife. And then they said, we're nothing like him. So me, three of them. One of them said, me, I'm going to pray all night and I'm never going to sleep. And the other one said, I'm going to fast every day and I'm not going to break my fast. And the other one said, I'm not going to get married. And so when the Prophet was told about this, he said that this thing, I'm the most knowledgeable of you and I'm the one with the most taqwa. And uh, whoever leaves my way, they're not from me. And then he said, and I pray in the night and I sleep. And I fast in the day, and I break my fast, and I get married. So whoever leaves my sunnah, then they're not from me. So he reigns in kind of like the extremism of the people. People tend to extremes. Allah has blessed us by sending to us this messenger who teaches us what we lack the knowledge of. He rightfully orders us to give thanks for this blessing. Thus we have sent you a messenger from yourselves. He recites unto you our verses, purifies you, teaches you the book and wisdom, and he teaches you that which you did not know. Therefore, remember me, I will remember you. Give thanks to me, and do not be ungrateful to me. In Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah the Exalted has informed us that he created the heavens and the earth and sent down the command in order that we know his power, knowledge, and attributes. He says, it is Allah 
who has created the seven heavens and likewise the earth. The command descends between them in order that you may know that Allah has power over all things and that Allah encompasses all things in knowledge. SubhanAllah. The scholars truly fear Allah. Next section. Allah has praised the scholars in many places in the Quran. He has informed us that it is his knowledge, it is his knowledgeable servants who fear him. They are the scholars. Ibn Abbas comments on the verse, indeed among his servants, it is but the learned who fear Allah. Saying, indeed, my servants who know my majesty, grandeur, and sublimity fear me. The best knowledge is knowledge of Allah, his, his names, attributes, and actions. This knowledge engenders in its possessor direct knowledge of Allah, his fear, his love, his reverence, his exaltation, his magnification, intense devotion, absolute reliance on him, patience, being pleased with him, and preoccupation with him. This is followed by knowledge of his angels, his books, his messengers, the day of resurrection, and related matters. Likewise, this includes knowledge of Allah's commandments, prohibitions, his laws, rulings, and that which he loves, and that which he loathes of his servants' outer and inner actions. This is basically Hadith Jibreel, right? So the first part is Iman, second part is Islam, outward and, and, and accent, outward and inner actions. Those who join knowledge of Allah with knowledge of his commandments are the righteous scholars. They are more complete than those whose knowledge is limited to experiential knowledge of Allah. We went over this. They are also more complete than those whose scholars whose knowledge is limited to understanding legal rulings. Examples of such scholars are. Uh, so now he's giving you examples of people who fit both categories. Who fit both categories. Hassan al-Basri, Sa'id ibn Musayyib, Sufyan al-Thawri, Imam Ahmed, and their like. Others who obtain this state are Malik ibn Dinar, Fudayl ibn Iyad, Ma'ruf al Kalqi. Bashir al-Hafi, and others who had experiential knowledge of Allah. So this second category actually, the first category that he mentions are known as people of knowledge. Okay? They're known primarily as people of knowledge, but they were also people of uh, taqwa. And the second category are people who are known as people of taqwa and experiential knowledge, but they were also people who had outward knowledge. So they're, they're two separate, I mean not separate, but they're not exactly the same groups. That's why he lists them separately. So the first was Hassan al-Basri, Sayyid ibn Sayyid, Sufyan al-Thawri, Imam Ahmed, and their like. The others who obtained this state are Malik ibn Dinar, Fudayl ibn Iyad, Ma'ruf al-Kalqi, Bishr al-Hafi, and others who had experienced knowledge of Allah. These are also very, very knowledgeable people, but these, are, these ones are the ones who are known as the righteous people of their time. Ma'ruf al-Kalqi. Uh, there's some beautiful stories about these people. Let me see if I can get something out of the files. There's a story about Ma'ruf al-Kalqi. Ma'ruf al-Kalqi. Ma'ruf means known, right? There's a couple different stories about how he got his name. But the, the main story is that he was actually raised as a Christian. And his parents sent him to a teacher. We should take heed of this. Okay? His parents sent him to a teacher, and the teacher was abusive. And he didn't like it. His parents kept telling him that he should still go because it's like the religious teacher, right? And eventually he left. He, he ran away, actually ran away from home. And the parents started to make dua and to say, oh Allah, if you return our son back to us, then you know, we'll follow whatever he follows and we'll do whatever he does and, does and stuff like that. And he went and he met one of the imams from Ahmed Bayt. I forget which one it was. Ali um, al he met one of the imams, or remember Musa and Khalid? No, I think Bishr al-Hafi was Musa and Khalid. It's interesting that several of these, they had their Tawbah stories with the imams of Ahmed Bayt. Um, and so, anyways, he meets him and he comes back to his family. He knocks on the door and they say, who is it? And he says, Maruf. And then they knew it was their son. And they opened the door and they accepted Islam and stuff like that. So that's one story of how he became called Maruf. <coughs> Another story about him is that after he died, said that someone, I guess someone saw this in a dream or something, but it said that after he died, uh, what happens when we die? The angels come and they ask us questions, right? So the angels came to him in the grave and they asked him, who is your Lord? And he said, Ma'ruf. You know? not, not him. Ma'ruf means again, it means it's known. It's known, right? He's like, what he's saying is, this question is so straightforward, it doesn't even deserve an answer. <laughs> like it's already known who is your Lord. Your Lord is Allah. It's Maruf. It's Maruf who is who is your Lord. 
They said, who is your Lord? He said, Ma'ruf. And they said, what way do you follow? And he said, Ma'ruf. And he said, and what do you say about this man? He said, Ma'ruf. <laughs> so the angels took it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they told Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we just questioned your servant on the questions and everything he answered. He said, Ma'ruf. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to them, Hada abdi ma'roof hinduhu ma'roof. They said, This is my servant ma'roof, he's known. Like, we know who he is. Yeah. So these are people that are interesting people. Fudayl ibn Iyad was, um, was actually a highway robber. His story is one of the interesting ones. He used to also sit in the halqa of Imam Abu Hanifa. Imam Abu Hanifa's circle was a circle of scholars. He was like a he was like a, um, uh, like a fiqh council in the modern sense. You, know, you have a fiqh council where there's 20, 30 scholars from different lands. They, ask, they deal with questions. Mambo Hanifa's circle was like that. Fudayl ibn Yad was one of the people in his circle. And, uh, but in Fudayl, his story started that he was, uh, he was a highway robber. Qatiya tariq You know, he was a criminal. And people used to be afraid of him. And one night he was going actually to climb a wall to see like a woman. He was climbing the wall of her house. And he heard someone reciting the verse, "Alam He heard the verse that says, "Has the time not come for the people that their hearts should experience fear and awe about Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and what He has revealed from the truth?" So as he was climbing the wall, he heard this verse being recited, and he said, These are these people like they were interesting people. He said, "The time has come, Allah." The time has come along. And he made Tawbah right there. And then he went and he, he's, he's like, I'm, that's it, I'm turning my life around. And he went and he saw some people who were traveling and they were telling each other, they were having a discussion with each other, like, we should rest at night and we shouldn't travel because Fudayl might be out. <laughs> like, Fudayl might be around to rob us and like, we should be safe and stay and not travel at nighttime and stuff like that. And he heard that and he went to them. And he told them, like, you know, he gave them glad tidings, and he's, this whole thing is turned around and everything else. And then he became, like, a very righteous person, you know. And these are, what's amazing is that these are the people whose stories we tell them for 1,200 years. You know, sometimes people look at themselves and they're like, how, I've done this and I've done that, and I made this mistake and I made that mistake. And, uh, <clears throat> as long as we look at ourselves, everything is always impossible. As long as we look at ourselves, everything is always impossible. But as soon as we look at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, everything is possible. There's no limits now. How can someone be a, a highway robber and then turn around and be one of the great, like literally one of the greatest righteous people in all of Muslim history? Fudayl is like, you will see widespread agreement on Fudayl. And the stories of Fudayl and his, story, his stories and his statements and everything else. Is it because Allah wanted it to be that way. He changed it. Bishr al-Hafi also is similar. I think he was the one of Muslim Qadi that he was having like a party at his house and the Shaykh came and knocked on the door and said, basically said something to him like how do you do this and he's like get away I'm having a party and the Shaykh left and then like something happened I don't remember the details of it but something happened and he realized like no he was right and he ran out of the house trying to catch the Shaykh and tell him no you were right and I'm going to turn my life around and stuff like that but because he, he, it happened so suddenly, he ran out of the house barefoot. That's why he's called Bishr al-Hafi, Bishr the barefoot. So he ran out of the house barefooted, and he found him, and he told him, no, you're right, and he made Tawbah and everything like that. And he, and he used to walk around barefoot after that. He would ask him why. And he said, because the moment when Allah entered my heart was a moment when I was barefooted, and so I don't put anything on my feet, I just walk around barefoot. You know, Bishr al-Hafi, Bishr al-Hafi. And he said some really, he has some really amazing, amazing statements actually. Uh, Sheikh Qadawi quotes them in his book on Fiqh al-Aliyat, in the book of the Fiqh of Priorities. Sheikh Hafi has a couple of good statements in there. Like one of them was a man came to him and he asked for his dua. He said, I'm going on a hajj. It's not my obligatory hajj. I've already made hajj before, but I'm going on a hajj. I want your dua. So I asked him, he said, with your hajj, do you want Allah? Or do you want the feeling that comes from visiting the house of Allah? Imagine if you're asked that question, you get like a little bit, <laughs> you get a little bit worried, right? <laughs> so he said, uh, I don't remember what his answer was, but Bishr told him basically, if it's Allah that you want, then you're better off taking that money and giving it to poor people. 
than going and making another hedge. If it's Allah that you want. If you want the house, go see the house, the capital, right? But if you want Allah, then give the money to the people who need it. You already made your hajj. Right? In another case, Bishr al-Hafi, someone came to him and they told him about a man who was very wealthy. And <clears throat> they told him that this wealthy man, he's given up all of his business and his trade and everything else. And now he's a worshiper. He fasts every day and he prays all night. And Bishr, he said, in miskeen, said, miskeen, kharaja min hadi wa dakhala fi hadi ghaydi. He said he left his situation, the situation he was in, and he went into someone else's situation. His situation was that he should be giving people who are hungry food and taking care of those who are in need. Not that he should be starving himself and praying in the night. He's saying, what's his point? He's saying, every person has a different responsibility. This person was given wealth, and, and, and so this person... They should continue to make their wealth in a halal way and give it to people who need it rather than leaving what they're doing and going and like becoming a worshiper. That's not what you should do. So Bishra has some really interesting uh, quotes as well. Bishra al-Hafi, Ma'roof, Malik ibn Dinar, I don't remember off the top of my head all of his stories. But uh, These are people who are very known in the early period as having experiential knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whoever compares these two states knows the virtue of those who have, been, have, who have both experiential knowledge of Allah and knowledge of His commandments over those who only possess direct knowledge of Allah. Therefore, how much better is one who has experiential knowledge of Allah and knowledge of His commandments over those who only have knowledge of His commandments? Their superiority is evident. Some ignorant people think that devout worshippers are more virtuous than scholars. They imagine that scholars only have knowledge of Allah's commandments and that devout worshippers have experiential knowledge of Allah. Naturally, they consider those sages who have experiential knowledge of Allah more meritorious than the jurists who only possess knowledge of Allah's commandments. We posit that scholars who have experiential knowledge of Allah and knowledge of His commandments are more virtuous than devout worshippers, even if these devout worshippers have experiential knowledge of Allah. This is because righteous scholars share with devout worshippers the virtue of possessing experiential knowledge of Allah. They may even surpass them in this virtue. However, scholars uniquely possess the knowledge of Allah's commandments and the honor of calling humanity to Allah and illuminating the path leading to Him. This is the station of the messengers, The successors of the messengers and their heirs. This will be discussed later in our moment. The knowledge that scholars possess is better than the superiority, superior, superior, that word that we use in English translations that nobody ever uses in real life. What is it? <laughs> superior, superrogatory. Superrogatory super ritual acts of worship of the devout, acts of worship that some scholars may lack. Hiding knowledge of that which Allah has revealed to his messenger creates an increase in experiential knowledge of Allah and of faith. Experiential knowledge of Allah and true faith are better than the acts of the limbs. However, the uninformed person extols the importance of such worship over knowledge because he cannot conceptualize the essence of knowledge nor its sublimity. Therefore, he lacks the conceptual framework to attain the motivation to strive for knowledge. He can only conceptualize the essence of worship. He thus has the motivation to exert himself entirely in his devotions. So you may find, so you find many who lack knowledge preferring complete detachment from the world over engagement in the religious sciences and learning. As we just stated, such people cannot conceptualize the essence of knowledge and spiritual experience. For one who fails to conceptualize something, its significance will never become rooted in the heart. It's an important principle. Right? If we cannot conceptualize something, its significance cannot be in our hearts. It's very important, right? Like, if I, if, if I can't conceptualize the importance of something, how am I going to love it? So, you know, this... People, sometimes they don't realize how beneficial these things are because they don't have an understanding of it. In fact, an ignorant person conceptualizes the nature of the world and magnifies it in his heart. Therefore, he magnifies the virtue of one who leaves it. Muhammad ibn Wasi'ah once saw youth to whom it was said, they are the otherworldly people. Muhammad ibn Wasi'ah asked, what possible significance does the world have that merits praise for one who shuns it? It's <laughs> a good one. Did you catch it? They said, these are, these are people of the Akhirah, they're not people of dunya. He said, what merit does dunya have in the first place, such that if someone leaves it, they deserve praise? <laughs> you see? <laughs> like, if you leave something, it's only worth leaving it. It means something if you left it, if it means something in the first place. It doesn't mean anything in the first place. Um, Muhammad ibn Wasi'ah also is an interesting person. 
There was one of the early Muslim leaders who said that <coughs> for me to have Muhammad bin Wasi in my army and for him to lift his finger and say La ilaha illallah is more valuable to me than like a thousand or ten thousand soldiers. Forget the number if it was a thousand or ten thousand. But he's saying for him to be in my ranks and to say La ilaha illallah is more important than, to me, than ten thousand soldiers. Abu Sulaiman al-Darani, also from these early righteous people, is known to have conveyed a similar point. One who takes pride in otherworldliness is like one who takes pride in leaving some trivial thing, something that has less significance with Allah than a gnat's wing. This world is petty and unworthy of mention, far from being something that evokes pride when it is shunned. It's <laughs> humbling. Many ignorant people extol supernatural occurrences and miracles and consider them better than the spiritual insight and knowledge given to the scholars. They conceptualize miracles as a source of distinction because they are manifestations of a degree of physical power and authority which most people are incapable of. Supernatural occurrences, however, are not extolled as such by spiritually elevated scholars. They shun such occurrences considering them a form of tribulation and trial. They expose the worshiper to the trap of veneration. The scholars fear preoccupation with such occurrences and becoming content with them and thus severed from Allah by them. Abu Talib al-Mekki relates this in his book, Qut al-Qunub. This is a very famous early book on spirituality. They say that Imam Ghazali took a lot from it. Qut al-Qunub, the sustenance of the hearts. From a large number of spiritual sages, among them Abu Yazid al-Muslami, Yahya ibn Mu'ad, Sahna al-Tustari, Dhunun al-Musli, Junaid, and others. It was said to one of them, that person can walk on water. He said, one who Allah empowers to oppose his whims is better off. It's better off. So there's a number of interesting things about this. The first interesting thing is that when you read these old books, it seems that supernatural occurrences were not like something that they thought was uncommon or strange. Okay? Sorry. My foot is long past asleep. Oh. So they, they didn't think that supernatural occurrences were strange. This is what happened. And you can tell by the way that these books are written, it happens all the time. And what's being mentioned here is very important, which is that those things, they don't really matter so much. Like maybe they're a sign for the person who gets them. Maybe they're not actually, because scholars are always say that miracles, like breaks of the norm, are not always a karam, a miracle. Sometimes they're just a draj. Sometimes they're just like someone's being left astray. The Dajjal will have miracles, right? Um, so they're not necessarily a sign in of themselves. The sign is, a person's following the Sharia. That's what, that's what the sign is. Everything else is secondary. And this is really important for people who, sometimes people get into like spirituality and they get on like, you know, all this spiritual stuff. And uh, it's very, very important to keep this concept in the front of our minds. That what matters is knowledge, what matters is practice, what matters is istiqamah, that's the best miracle. You know, if someone can be upright and be steadfast for an extended period of time, that's the best miracle. Everything else is secondary. And it might not even be anything in the first place. So this is why he said, the one who Allah empowers to oppose their whims is better off. Abu Hafsan Nisafuri was sitting with his companions one day at the outskirts of the city. You know, some of these people, they did things that are very, they're much more amazing than miracles. Like Abu Yazid, he says that, um, you know, that one time his nefs, he told it to do something, his lower self, and his nafs was fighting with him about it. He's like, so I, I denied it cold water for a year. You know? <laughs> You're not going to get it, sorry. <laughs> you think you have any say in this whole thing? Like your internal self, right? He's like, you think you have any say? You don't have any say. I'll show you you don't have any say. No water for you one year. You know? so that's a lot more impressive than walking on water, flying in the air or something like that. Losing the Muslim. Abu Hafsun Nisafuri was sitting with his companions one day at the outskirts of the city while he was lecturing them and throwing them with his discourse a wild goat suddenly descended from the mountain and knelt down before him and Nisafuri was visibly shaken and started to weep his students asked him about his reaction and he said I saw you gathered around me and how enthralled you were I thought to myself if only I had a sheep to slaughter and could invite you all to a feast as soon as this thought occurred this goat came and knelt down in front of me Thus I thought, am I like Pharaoh who asked his Lord to make the Nile flow for him and it was made to do so? I then said to myself, what can possibly protect me from Allah giving me every material good in, this, in the world while I remain bankrupt in the hereafter possessing nothing? This is what disturbed me. 
The, spirit, the spiritual states of such sages is evidenced in the fact that they do not pay any attention to these supernatural occurrences. Rather, they are concerned with true knowledge of Allah, being humble before Him, gaining His love, nearness to Him, longing for His meeting, and obeying Him. The righteous scholars join the spiritual types in this, but surpass them through knowledge of the commandments of Allah and through calling humanity to Him. This is immensely virtuous with Allah, His angels, and His messengers. One of the righteous forebears said, Whoever learns, acts on his knowledge, and then teaches it to others, is considered to have attained greatness in the heavenly realm. If the superiority of the scholar over the ordinary devout worshipper is clear, it should be understood that his superiority lies in increased knowledge. As for the devout worshipper lacking knowledge, he is denounced. The righteous forebears compared the latter to a vagabond. He does more harm than good. Such a person can be compared to a donkey turning a millstone. He goes round and round until he drops from exhaustion, having gone nowhere. This likeness is so clear that it requires no elaboration, and Allah knows best. Actually, sometimes what they're saying here is sometimes a righteous person, a worshiper, they can actually be harmful sometimes if they're very ignorant. You see it, I'm sure you've seen it. Like someone who they're very sincere. And they love Allah, and they love the Prophet them, and they pray all the time, and they do all this worship and everything else. But then, and they have a special connection with Allah. But they don't understand how to make sense of that in the world around them. So when they go to give advice to someone else, or they go to talk to someone else, they say things that actually hurt them. You know? Because for them, like that, being at Fajr is so easy. Right? Or whatever else it might be. And then they start to like look down on other people because they don't come to Fajr, or they do this or that, or whatever else it might be, and then it becomes very problematic. So the knowledge is important to balance. Does anyone have any questions or comments or anything before? I don't think we have two short chapters left. Inshallah, we'll finish them next time. We might be able to finish one, but if there's usually there's questions, comments. Anyone have anything? Dunya all the time because if it wasn't for dunya what would we have in the akhirah? 
Like this is where we, how do we have something in the next life? Because we did something here. So why should I speak negatively about here all the time? So the negatively is not about here in like an absolute sense. Negatively is about here in a level of just like being excessive, having the wrong priorities and so on. So first point is, dunya becomes dunya in a negative sense, with no intention, without following the sharia, without following the adab of the Prophet and so on. Second thing that I'll mention is that there's a difference between in some like South Asian circles they'll say there's a difference between uh, fatwa and taqwa. It's a difference between fatwa and taqwa. Or if you use the Quranic terminology, there's a difference between adl and ihsan. Adl and ihsan. So what does that mean? That means that there's the baseline that like is it halal or not, or is it haram or not? You know? Someone can have a home that's really nice, it might be more than what they really need, and it can still be halal. And they can still use it for good reasons, and so on and so forth, and that would be okay. And you can't blame them for that, because it's not haram. And this is something we do in the community a lot that's really problematic. Is that we, so the first layer is the layer of what's halal, right? This is adl, justice, or fatwa terminologies. The second layer is what's best, what's ihsan, or what is taqwa, or what is... So if someone is meeting the, the level of what's halal, you can't blame them for that. So, and what we do is we tell we have all these beautiful stories and things about taqwa, about ihsan, about so on and so forth. So we have these stories in our head and we blame ourselves and others if we don't meet those stories. But that's not, that's all extra. Right? And so... Dunya becomes a problem, a real problem if it gets you under that line, which is the line of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Right? If it gets you into what's not allowed, then that's a problem. And then, of course, it's always one can always do more. When you look at the example of the Prophet them is very particular, you know, like to the extent that his wives were like, we can't take this. And he gave them an ultimatum and told them, like, this is the way it is. Either you be patient with it or you, know, you can go on your way. It sounds very harsh, but like this is the Prophet. He has a particular way that he lives. And he didn't have anything, right? Like if we look at the Prophet's home, he didn't have anything. He slept on a, on a reed mat that when he would wake up, when he would get up, the marks of it would be on his body. He didn't eat for extended periods of time, you know, anything. He never, they say he never had a whole loaf of bread in his whole life, like, at once. They never saw, like, a whole animal at once, unless he was invited. But on his own table, it wasn't like that. So, there's the example of the Prophet's Aysana that we can aspire to. But the base minimum is intention and sharia, and some level of adab. So not like, you know. But, you know, we are, we are called beyond Sharia in some ways. You know, we're called to, to live beautiful, loving lives. But intention makes a lot to do with that. By the way, there are many righteous people who are very wealthy. Right? Like we, we should remember that. Abu Hanifa was very wealthy. Abu Hanifa was very wealthy. You know, he was, he was a, a trader, a merchant, and he inherited his business. And he had a partner who would handle the business. And he would just check in every so often. And... Um, they say that like many of the scholars of Hadith in Kufa, for example, were on his, they received stipends from him. No strings attached. He would just give them money. They were living off him. Like him. All of these people were living off him. His top student, Abu Yusuf, was living off Abu Hanifa for 20 years. He supported Abu, Abu Yusuf for 20 years while he studied with him and his family and everything else, right? So many of these people were very wealthy. Imam Malik was also very wealthy. Shaykh uh, al Jilani used to say, I mean, he went through times in his life where he literally was like dying of hunger, you know. It was like there were times when he was about to die from hunger and someone came and said like, here's food that was sent from your mother, <laughs> you know, in Jilan. <laughs> and it just got here, I just found you, you know. Sat down next to him, he's like, I'm looking for this guy from Zainz al-Baqadah. He's like, oh, I'm him, you know. It's like his food's right there, so he doesn't die. But there were times when he was literally that hungry. And, um, but when they asked him, he said, I wish I could have everything in this world. You're like, what? I wish I could have like all of the wealth. I wish I could have all of it. And they were like, why? He said, because then I would just give it to everyone who needs it. It wouldn't stay in his hand. It would just pass through him. So it would all come to him, and then it would just pass through to wherever else it needs to go. So 
you know, these things are just a man of God help us to deal with them appropriately. But we should be careful because America is extremely, in, like this whole America thing and this whole Instagram thing is really crazy. Because you're being sold something, like every single moment of your day you're being sold something. And you're being sold something more. Because if you don't want more, you can't be sold something. Right? So like, if you're, if you're a Zahid, if you like follow the Sunnah of the Prophet them, you're bad for the economy, quote unquote, right? Because you don't want to buy anything. Like, I'm fine. Like, what do you mean you're fine? You have to have another thing. He's like, well, I have two shirts, and I ate this morning, and I'm good to go. I'm to you know? <laughs> so you're bad for the, for the consumer economy. But at the same time, it's like, there's balance in these things. Culture matters, too. What else? Texas, and all of the money that comes from that house 
for the rest of human existence is going to the masjid. That's the way endowments work and they were developed over hundreds of years. So like at the point where the endowments were stolen from all these institutions during nationalism and stuff like that, the, um, like all of the area around Al-Azhar was endowments to Azhar, all of the businesses. Basically all of the businesses, all of the shops, all of the masajid were endowments. And they're endowed as a very wealthy person, because let's be honest, okay, a lot of the weight falls on the middle class actually usually, which is like, you know, someone has an extra hundred dollars, they give the hundred dollars, and alhamdulillah, it's a blessing for them, it's great. But really, if you have a hundred million dollars, it's not very difficult for you to do, right? Like if you have a hundred million dollars and you take five and you build a masjid and you put one million of it in an investment that every single year is going to pay the imam, then you're done. The whole thing is done actually. And that's the way that it actually happened. Was that someone would die, they have a piece of agricultural land, and they, take the, they say, when I die, this agricultural land is going to Masjid X. And it, it'll have, like, it has, someone has to be paid to run it, someone has to be paid to work there, all of that stuff, of course, and then all of the profit goes to that thing. So they say at the time of colonialism, like when colonialism started, a quarter to a third of the agricultural land in Egypt, a quarter to a third of the agricultural land in Turkey, were in endowments. Imagine that, like, just think about that for a second. Like, how much is the agricultural produce of California? It's probably like somewhere crazy in the billions, right? Imagine if a quarter of all of the land profits in California were going to the hospitals and the schools and everything else. Like, it's just straight. So that's how it was done. So then everyone, like, obviously there were some gender issues here oftentimes, but like, if you were a student in Azhar in the past, you had room and board, it was free. Uh, you didn't pay to go to Azhar. Yeah, Azhar was already paid. It was already done. All of the shiuch, they, they were all there on endowments. The endowments were already paid. And they're not, like, there's no fundraising. There's no, like, I'm, I, and part of what's important about that is then the people of knowledge don't become subject to the whims of donors. This is a standing financial thing. It's independent. And it's done. So this institution now has the ability to hire this person hire this person, to hire this person, to hire those people. And the money doesn't go away because it's, it's assets, right? Um, so if you came to us, how you get food? You want to get like a crazy meal or something, but you could survive. You get a meal and you get, you get housing. Up to today, it's there, by the way. Like people who come, especially from poorer countries and stuff, they're not used to the things we're used to in America. So they're okay with it. They go and live in the dorms and they have a cafeteria in the dorms, they eat the food, and they live their life and they study. Uh, like when we went to Azhar, our tuition was probably like $30 or something for a year. <laughs> you know, so up to today, it's free. It's really, I mean, largely it's free. But that's how these things were done. And that's how they should be done. Like if we, were, if, we were, if we were to take all of the millions of dollars that have been donated and put them in some sort of investment, we wouldn't have any financial issues as a community. And then that, would, and that applies to everything. Obviously, for zakat, it doesn't apply because zakat has to immediately go to people who are in need. But uh, for other donations, that's how you do it. And in the early period, it wasn't actually developed so much yet. That's why Hanif is doing it himself. And a lot of the rich people, they would do it themselves. Up to date, people do that. Like, uh, you know, let's say, I'm just going to take care of someone. I've known when we were in massages and stuff like that, you meet people who like, They'll come and write a check every month that covers the imam's salary. Like a $10,000 check, $8,000 check, whatever it is. This is. Every month they cover it. You know? It's still not, probably they have their own foundation. <laughs> Everyone now, that's what people do, they have their own foundations and that's the way they do it rather than making it more public. Which um, is another topic. That's how you do it in the end. If you do it that way, then there's no financial issues. Anyone can do it. But then you have a second problem, by the way, which we just have to point it out, which is that and when I was younger, the big point, the big thing was we need people to go study. We didn't think about something. Just, what are they going to do when they come back? <laughs> so, okay, everyone goes and studies. What are they going to do when they come back? Like, they have to work. If you don't have the institutions that provide the work, if you don't have, then you don't have any work. Now, a lot of people that we know who when they studied, they went back into engineering or computer science, whatever else they had degrees in before they went and studied. Right? So, literally, a lot of us. But that's an important question. And we have plenty of money to do it, actually. Yeah.
We have all the money to do it. We have all the know-how to do it. That, that's not the issue. So, we'll do that. Anyone else? Do you have anything to add to that? Recordings.